This is the Retrowave Podcast, and I am Jordan. We are back for episode three, which is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So I took a little bit of time off, as you could tell, by the huge gap in between episodes. Um, so I had previously been on a podcast with my sister uh, called the Mystery History Podcast. And just in between that time, I needed a little bit of time to regroup and figure out what I wanted this to be. So if you're still listening, thank you. I know that was a long time to just disappear, but I appreciate you. Um, so yeah, I figured I'd get back into it with October being my favorite month and all kinds of spooky stuff to talk about. And I figured why not start with one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, one of the first scary movies I saw as a child terrified me as the just the name they really got the name right <laughs> right off the bat you're like yep this is gonna be fucked up and it is it is so let's get into the texas chainsaw massacre the texas chainsaw massacre is a 1974 american horror film produced and directed by toby hooper from story and screenplay by hooper and kim hankel it stars Marilyn Burns, Paul A. Partain, Edwin Neal, Jim Seedow, and Gunnar Hansen, who respectively portray Sally Hardesty, Franklin Hardesty, The Hitchhiker, The Proprietor, and Leatherface. The f- film follows a group of friends who fall victim to a family of cannibals while on their way to visit an old homestead. The film was marketed as being based on true events to attract a wider audience and to act as a subtle commentary on the era's political climate. Although the the character, that's not a word, the character of Leatherface and minor story details were inspired by the murderer Ed Gein, and its its, uh, plot is largely fictional. So they portrayed it to be true, uh, but it's not. I think, I feel like this is the first movie that ever did that, which is kind of groundbreaking because nowadays you see this film was based on a true story. And the only thing true about it is there was once a guy named Bill alive. But they're like, yeah, that's true, technically. I, I don't know. I feel like a lot of scary movies nowadays, well, I feel like it kind of fell off. But like in the 90s and 2000s, there was a lot of them. So Hooper produced the film for less than $140,000, which is $700,000 in today's money, and used a cast of relatively unknown actors drawn mainly from Central Texas, where the film was shot. The limited budget forced Hooper to film for long hours, seven days a week, so they could finish quickly and return the rental equipment. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Just like, we got to get this shit done. This shit's expensive. <laughs> Due to the film's violent content, Hooper struggled to find a distributor, but was eventually acquired by Louis Perano of Bryanston Distributing Company. Um, Hooper limited the quantity of on-scene gore in hopes of securing a PG rating, <laughs> But the MPAA, or Motion Picture Association of America, rated it R. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, the film faced similar difficulties internationally. How are you going to name something the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and be like, can we get a PG on that, please? <laughs> oh, boy. Good thought, but man, different name would have helped, I think. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre was banned in several countries, and numerous theaters stopped showing the film in response to complaints about its violence. While it initially drew a mixed reception from critics, it was highly profitable, grossing over $30 million at the box office, um, equivalent to roughly $150 million as of today, 
and selling 16.5 million tickets in 1974. It has since gained a reputation as one of the best and most influential horror films. It is credited with originating several elements of the slasher genre, including the use of power tools as a murder weapon, the characterization of a killer as a large, hulking, faceless figure, and the killing of its victims. It led to a franchise that continued the story of Leatherface and his family through sequels, prequels, and a remake, plus comic books and video games. So that's pretty fucking good. He made it for $140,000 and made $30 million. That's nuts. I feel like $30 million in 1970 would be like, you're, you gotta, you retire. You're done. Wild. All right. So let's get into the plot. Sally Hardesty, her paraplegic brother Franklin, and their friends Jerry, Kirk, and Pam visit the grave of the Hardesty's grandfather to investigate reports of vandalism and grave robbing. Afterwards, they decide to visit the old Hardesty family homestead. Along the way, they pick up a hitchhiker who talks to the family about how his, his family worked in an old slaughterhouse. He borrows Franklin's pocket knife and cuts himself, then takes a single Polaroid picture of Franklin, which he demands money for. When they refuse to pay, he burns the photo and slashes Franklin's left arm with a straight razor. The family, uh, or I'm sorry, the group forces him out of the van and they drive on. They stop at a gas station to refill the vehicle, but the proprietor tells them that their pumps are empty. They continue toward the homestead, intending to return to the gas station once it has received a fuel delivery. When they arrive, Franklin tells Kirk and Pam about a local swimming hole, and the couple go to find it. They stumble upon a nearby house, and Kirk calls out for gas, entering through the unlocked door. While Pam waits outside, Leatherface, a large, mute man wearing a mask made of human skin, suddenly appears and kills Kirk with a hammer. Pam enters soon after and trips into a room filled with furniture made of human bones. She attempts to flee, but Leatherface catches her and impales her on a meat hook, making her watch as he butchers Kirk with a chainsaw. Jerry heads out to look for Pam and Kirk at sunset. He sees the house and finds Pam still alive inside a freezer, but before he can react, Leatherface kills him. I was watching a uh, documentary. It's called, um, what is it, History of Horror? History of Horror by Eli Roth on AMC. If you haven't seen that, go watch it. It is fantastic. But he was talking about how back in these days they didn't have, like they wouldn't have money or even the means to make the special effects look the way that they should. So he was talking about that meat hook scene which is very famous for being gruesome. But the funny thing is they don't even show the meat hook like going into her, which is nowadays like Saul's done a thousand times worse than that. But back in 1974, they, it just shows her him. He lifts her up and then I'm guessing they had like a harness on and he just sets her on the harness, but your brain just fills in those gaps which is really interesting the way that your mind will do that. Cause you'll, you'll swear that in that movie, he puts her on there and you see everything, but no, nope, you don't. It's pretty, pretty impressive the way it's just psychology. You just, whenever they're filming something like this, they just expect the audience to basically fill in that image for you, for them. I mean, so they don't even have to show it. They just, they know 
that people will be terrified and fill that in with their whatever they, people can imagine is probably worse than what they can show. Which is always the old adage about the monster behind the door is always scarier because you don't know what it is or what it looks like or how it moves or whatever. So whatever you think in your mind, it makes every individual person's worst nightmare that monster, which is like everybody probably sees that scene and interprets it differently, which is pretty amazing. It's pretty cool how films like this do that. Everybody always says these films are like, I mean, they are pretty like, that's a horror film. There are people getting murdered, but it's pretty interesting, the psychology of it all. With darkness falling, Sally and Franklin set out to find their friends. As they near the neighboring house and call out, another face lunges from the darkness and kills Franklin with a chainsaw. Sally runs toward the house and finds the desiccated remains of an elderly couple upstairs. She escapes from Leatherface by jumping through a second-floor window, and as she flees to the gas station, the proprietor calms her with offers to help, but then ties her up, gags her, and forces her into his truck. He drives to the house, arriving at the same time as the hitchhiker, now revealed as Leatherface's brother. The hitchhiker recognizes Sally and taunts her. The men torment the bound and gag Sally while Leatherface, now dressed as a woman, serves dinner. Leatherface and the hitchhiker bring down one of the desiccated bodies from upstairs, that of their grandpa. He is revealed to be alive when he sucks the blood from a cut on Sally's finger. They decided that Grandpa, the best killer in the old slaughterhouse, should kill Sally. He tries to hit her with a hammer, but he is too weak. In the ensuing struggle, she breaks free, leaps through a window, and flees to the road. Leatherface and the hitchhiker give chase, but the latter is run over and killed by a passing truck. Leatherface attacks the truck with his chainsaw, and when the driver stops to help, he knocks Leatherface to the ground with a pipe wrench, causing the chainsaw to cut his leg. The driver flees, and Sally escapes in the back of the passing pickup truck as Leatherface maniacally flails his chainsaw in the air in anger and defeat. So that is the overall synopsis of what happens. If you haven't seen it, spoiler alert on a 60-year-old movie, uh, go watch it. Pretty good. That, I feel like, is not... That on paper does not sound that bad. But watching it is like... They said this on that History of Horrors also. It it's feels like you're actually watching like a documentary style film. It doesn't feel like a movie. These Since these people aren't like famous or anything, it's like, it's very, you can tell it's low budget, even for those days. But that makes it, it almost makes, it's like one of those happy accidents. That makes it feel more genuine because it's just a group of friends that stumble on the wrong house. But it's, some of the visuals in it, even to this day, are just like uns, very unsettling. The whole movie's unsettling. It is very, it's one of those movies that, you feel like you need to take a shower after you watch it. It's just like, ugh. but some of the effects do not hold up. I mean, most of them do. Cause like I said, they leave most of them off screen, but like the way they have the grandpa, he's very obviously just like a guy in like a mask and makeup and it does not look the greatest, but I'm sure it's the best they had for the money. It doesn't look terrible, but it's not, I'm sure it looked great back then, but today after seeing the things we've seen, it's, it's not very good, but the rest of the movie's fantastic. So now let's talk about the development of the film. The concept for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre arose in the early 1970s while Toby Hooper was working as an assistant film director at the University of Texas, Austin, as a documentary cameraman, which explains why it looks like a documentary. 
Um, he had already developed a story involving elements of isolation, the woods, and darkness. He credited the graphic coverage of violence by San Antonio news outlets as one of the el- inspirations for the film, and based elements of the plot on murder Ed Gein, who committed his crimes in the 1950s in Wisconsin. Gein inspired other horror films such as Psycho and Silence of the Lambs. During development, Hooper used the working titles of Head Cheese and Leatherface. <laughs> so, I mean, leather, yeah, there, none of them would have probably got PG now that we're talking about it, but hey, you do what you do. Hooper has cited changes in the cultural and political landscape as central influences of the film. His intentional misinformation, and the film you're about to see is true, was a response of being, in quotes, lied to by the government about things that were going on all over the world, end quote, including Watergate, the 1973 oil crisis, and the massacres and atrocities of the Vietnam War. The lack of sedimentally and the brutality of things that Hooper noticed while watching the local news, whose graphic coverage was epitomized by showing brain spilled all over the road, led to his disbelief that the man was the real monster here, just wearing a different face. So I put a literal mask on the monster of my film. The idea of using a chainsaw as a murder weapon came to Hooper while he was in the hardware section of a busy store, contemplating how to speed his way through the crowd. <laughs> I feel like we've all been there, you know. Sometimes you just get tired of waiting. Hooper and Kim Hinkle co-wrote the screenplay and formed Vortex Incorporated, with Hinkle as president and Hooper as vice president. They asked Bill Parsley, a friend of Hooper, to provide funding. Parsley formed a company named MAB Incorporated, through which he invested $60,000 in the production. In return, MAB owned 50% of the film and its profits. Man, that's a pretty good uh, return on investment right there. 50% of, what was it, 30 million? So you get $15 million. <laughs> Holy cow. For 60 grand. That's a pretty good day. Pretty good, uh, pretty good investment, I'd say. So, production manager Ron Bozeman told most of the cast and crew that he would have to defer, defer part of their salaries until after it was sold to a distributor. Vortex made the idea more attractive by awarding them a share of its potential profits, ranging from 0.25 to 6%, similar to mortgage points that companies give out. The cast and crew were not informed that Vortex owned only 50%, which means that their points were half of what they assumed. Uh, that's a little shady. But it's better than what they probably would have gotten anyway. So, a little bit about the casting. Many of the cast members at the Times uh, were relatively unknown actors, as I said. They were Texans who had played roles in commercials, television, and stage shows, as well as performers whom Hooper knew personally such as Alan Danziger and Jim Seedow. Involvement in the film propelled some of them into the motion picture industry. The lead role of Sally was given to Marilyn Burns, who had appeared previously on stage and served on the film commission board at UT Austin while studying there. Terry McMinn was a student who worked in a, or with local theater companies, including the Dallas Theater Center. Hinkle called McMinn to come in for a reading after he spotted her picture in the Austin American Statesman. For her last callback, he requested that she wear short shorts, which (laughs) proved to be the most comfortable of all the cast members' costume. Huh. I mean, I guess so, but that's, I don't know. That's a weird request. 
Icelandic American actor Gunnar Hansen was selected as the role for Leatherface. He regarded Leatherface as being mentally retarded and having never learned to speak properly. To research his character in preparation for the role, Hansen visited a special needs school and watched how students moved and spoke. John Larroquette, I believe is how it said, performed the narration in the opening credits, which you've had, if you haven't, I mean, I feel like they're pretty famous, but some people might have. If you haven't seen them, go watch. Just the opening credits are like, I feel like that changes the whole entire vibe of the movie. Without those opening credits and the opening reading that he does, the movie is n- like 50% less scary. That dude has, they got the voice guy right. Because, man, that shit is terrifying. So now on to the filming. The primary filming location was an early 1900s farmhouse located on Quick Hill Road near Round Rock, Texas, where the La Frontera development is now located. The small budget and concerns over high-cost equipment rentals meant the crew filmed seven days a week and up to 16 hours a day. The environment was humid, and the casting crew found conditions tough. Temperatures peaked at 110 degrees Fahrenheit, or 43 degrees Celsius, on July 26th. Hansen later recalled it was 95, 100 degrees every day during filming. They would wash my costume because they were worried that the laundry might lose... They wouldn't wash my costume, I'm sorry, because they were worried that the laundry might lose it or that it would have changed color. They didn't have enough money for a second costume, so I wore that mask 12 to 16 hours a day, seven days a week for a month. Oh my god. That would be unbearable. I don't know how you breathe in there. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre mainly shot using an Enclair NPR 16mm camera with fine-grained low-speed film that required four more times light than the modern digital cameras. Most of the filming took place in the farmhouse, which was filled with furniture constructed from animal bones and a latex material used as upholstery to give the appearance of human skin. The house was not cooled, and there was little ventilation. The crew covered its walls with drops of animal blood obtained from a local slaughterhouse. Art director Robert A. Burns drove around the countryside and collected the remains of cattle and other animals in various stages of decomposition with which he littered the house uh, floors with. What a job. Hey, go get all the dead shit you can find and bring it back here. Yikes. The special effects were simple and limited by the budget. The on-screen blood was real in some cases, such as the scene which Leatherface, Leatherface feeds Grandpa. Ooh, that was real blood. Oh, my God. Uh, the crew had difficulty getting the stage blood to come out of its tube, so instead Burns' index, f- uh, Burns's index finger was cut with a razor. Jeez. I feel like that would not fly today. Burns' costume was so drenched with stage blood that it was virtually solid by the last day of shooting. The scene in which Leatherface kills Kirk with a chainsaw worried actor William Vale... Uh, who was Kirk, after telling Vale to stay still, lest he really be killed. Hansen brought the running chainsaw within three inches of Vale's face. A real hammer was used for the climatic scene at the end, uh, with some takes also featuring a mock-up. However, the actor playing Grandpa was aiming at the floor rather than the victim's head. Still, the shoot was somewhat dangerous, with Hooper noting at the rap party that all the cast members had obtained some level of injury. He stated that everyone hated me by the end of the production, and it took some of them years to get over it. So now into the post-production. The production exceeded its original $60,000 budget during editing, 
Sources differ on the film's final cost, offering figures between 93000 and 300000 Well, that's a giant gap. That doesn't really help anything, as it was too much, is what it was. Uh, film production group Pie in the Sky, partially led by future president of the Texas State Bar, Joe K. Longley, provided, t- this is such an exact number, $23,532 in exchange for 19% of the Vortex Company. This left Henkel and Hooper and the rest of the crew with 40.5% of the stake. Warren Scarin, then the head of the Texas Film Commission, helped secure the uh, distribution deal with the Bryanston Distributing Company. David Foster, who would later produce the 1982 horror film The Thing, arranged for a private screening for some of Bryanston's... That's such a weird name, Bryanston. (laughs) We'll say it again. Bryanston's West Coast executives and received 1.5 of Vortex's profits and a deferred fee of $500. That's so low. It could have got way more. On August 28, 1974, Louis Pereno of Bryanston agreed to distribute the film worldwide, from which Bozeman and Scarin would receive $225,000, which in today's money is about $1.2 million and 35% of the profits. Years later, Bozeman stated, we made the deal, or made a deal with the devil, and I guess in that way, we got what we deserved. They signed the contract, and Brynston, uh, after the investors recouped their money with interest, and after Scarin, the lawyers, and the accountants were paid only $8,100, or about $42,000 today's money, was left to be divided among the 20 cast members, cast and crew members, Eventually, the producers sued Bryanston for failing to pay them their full percentage of the box office profits. A court judgment instructed Bryanston to pay the filmmakers $500,000, but by then, the company had declared bankruptcy. In 1983, New Line Cinema acquired the distribution rights from Bryanston and gave the producers a larger share of the profits. So that's kind of a cool ending. New Line coming through. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre premiered in Austin, Texas on October 1st, 1974, almost a year after filming concluded. It screened nationally in the United States as a Saturday afternoon matinee, and its false marketing as a true story helped it attract a broad audience. For eight years after 1976, it was annually reissued to first-run theaters promoted by full-page ads. The film grossed more than $30 million in the United States and Canada, and $14.4 million in rentals. Wow, that's so crazy. That's whole. That's why. Uh, making it the 12th highest grossing film initially released in 1974, despite its minuscule budget. Among independent films, it was overtaken in 1978 by John Carpenter's Halloween, which grossed $47 million. So that's, man, the horror genre, just crushing it. Hooper reportedly hoped that the Motion Picture Association of America would give the complete uncut release print a PG rating due to its minimal amount of visible gore. <laughs> Instead, it was originally rated X. After several minutes were cut, it was resubmitted to the MPAA and received an R rating. <laughs> so we want the lowest one. Now you got the highest one. <laughs> How could you be that far off? There's so many levels in between those two. A distributor apparently restored the offending material, and at least one theater presented the full version under an R rating. 
In San Francisco, cinema goers walked out of the theater in disgust. <laughs> and in February 1976, two theaters in Ottawa, Canada, were advised by local police to withdraw the film lest they face morality charges. <laughs> it's such a different world back then, man. Like, they're showing... Well, not anymore. But, like, the Saw movies were in theaters. That would not... Could you imagine if that got released in 1970? People would burn the theaters down. After its initial British release, including one-year theatrical run in London, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was initially banned on the advice of the British Board of Film Censors, uh, Secretary Stephen Murphy, and subsequently by his successor, James Furman. While the British ban was in force, the word chainsaw itself was barred from movie titles, forcing imitators to rename their films. In 1998, despite the BBFC, that doesn't roll up the tongue, Camden London Borough Council granted the film a license. The following year, the BBFC uh, passed the Texas Chainsaw Massacre for release with an 18 certificate, uh, indicating that it should not be seen by any person under the age of 18. And it was broadcast a year a year later. That's not how you say that. A year later on Channel Four. When the 83-minute version of the film was submitted to the Australian Classification Board by distributor Seven Keys in June of 1975, the board denied the film a classification and similarly refused classification of a 77-minute print in December that year. In 1981, the 83-minute version submitted by the Greater Union Film Distributors was again refused registration. It was later submitted by Filmways what is this? Austria Sin? Austria Lassen distributors? That's a lot of A's. My lord. And approved for an R rating in 1984. It was banned for periods in many other countries, including Brazil, Chile, Finland, France, Iceland, Ireland, Norway, Singapore, Sweden, and West Germany. In Sweden, it would also symbolize a video nasty as a, dis as a discussed topic at the time. The Tex Chainsaw Massacre received mixed reactions upon its initial release. Linda Gross of the Los Angeles Times called it despicable and described Hinkle and Hooper as more concerned with creating a realistic atmosphere than with its plastic script. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times said it was as violent and as gruesome and as blood-soaked as the title promises. That was not a very good sentence by a writer, I'll say that. Um, yet it praised its acting and technical execution. Donald B. Berrigan of the Cincinnati Inquirer praised the lead performance of Burns and said, Marilyn Burns as Sally deserves a special Academy Award for one of the most sustained and believing acting achievements in movie history. Patrick Taggart of the Austin American Statesman hailed it as the most important horror film since George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead in 1968. Variety found the picture to be a well-made film despite its heavy doses of gore. John McCarty of Cinefantastique, uh, that sounds French as hell, stated that the house featured in the film made the Bates Motel look positively pleasant by comparison. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre has often been described as one of the scariest films of all time. Rex Reed called it the most terrifying film he had ever seen. Empire described it as the most purely horrifying horror movie ever made, and called it, nevertheless, totally committed to scaring you witless. Reminiscing about the first viewing of the film, horror director Wes Craven recalled wondering what kind of Mansonite crazoid must have <laughs> created such a thing. 
It was a work of cataclysmic terror, in the words of horror novelist Stephen King, who declared, I would happily testify to its redeeming social merit in any court in the country. Critic Robin Wood found it one of the few horror films to possess the authentic quality of Nightmare. Based on 61 reviews published since 2000, the review aggregate website Rotten Tomatoes reports that 89% of critics gave it a positive review with an average score of 8.11 out of 10. The site's critical consensus states that, in quotes, thanks to a smart script and documentary-style camera work, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre achieves start-to-finish suspense, making it a classic in low-budget exploitation cinema. Leatherface has gained a reputation as a significant character in the horror genre, responsible for establishing the use of conventional tools as murder weapons and the image of a large, silent killer devoid of personality. Christopher Knoll of FilmCritic.com said, in quotes, In our collective consciousness, Leatherface and his chainsaw have become iconic, as Freddy and his razors or Jason and his hockey mask. Don Sumner called the Texas Chainsaw Massacre a classic that not only introduced a new villain to the horror pantheon, but also influenced the entire generation of filmmakers. According to Rebecca Asher Walsh, that's too many names, of Entertainment Weekly, it laid the foundations for Halloween, Evil Dead, and Blair Witch Horror franchises. Wes Craven crafted his 1977 film, The Hills Have Eyes, as an homage to Massacre, while Ridley Scott cited Hooper's film as an inspiration for his 1979 film, Alien. Heavy metal musician Rob Zombie sees it as a major influence on in his work, including his films House of a Thousand Corpses and The Devil's Rejects. Critic Christopher Sherritt argues that since Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho in 1960 and The Birds in 1963, the American horror film has been defined by the questions it poses about the fundamental validity of the American civilizing process. Concerns amplified during the 1970s by the delegitimation of authority in the wake of Vietnam and Watergate. In quotes, if Psycho began an exploration and the sense of absurdity in contemporary life, of collapse of casual, casuality and the diseased underbelly of American Gothic, he writes that Texas Chainsaw Massacre carries the exploration to a logical conclusion, addressing many of the issues in Hitchcock's films while refusing uh, comforting closure. Robin Wood characterizes Leatherface and his family as victims of industrial capitalism, their jobs as slaughterhouse workers have been rendered obsolete by technological advances. He states that the picture brings focus to the spirit of negativity and that seems to lie not too far below the surface of the collective American consciousness. Naomi Merritt explores the film's representation of cannibalistic capitalism in relation to George Batali's theory of taboo and transgression. She elaborates on Wood's analysis, stating that the Sawyers' family values reflect or correspond to established and interdependent American institutions, but their embodiment of these social units is perverted and transgressive. In Kim Newman's view, Hooper's presentation of the Sawyer family during the dinner scene parodies a typical American sitcom family. The gas station owner is the breadwinning father figure, the killer, Leatherface, is depicted as the bourgeois housewife, and the hitchhiker acts as the rebellious teenager. According to Jesse Stommel of Bright Lights Film Journal, 
The lack of explicit violence in the film forces viewers to question their own fascination with violence that they play a central role in imagining. Nonetheless, citing its feverish camera moves, repeated bursts of light, and auditory pandemonium, Stommel asserts that it involves the audience primarily on a sensory rather than an intellectual level. So that's kind of like what I was saying earlier about how you fill things in with your mind. It is kind of like a... I think our our whole country has a fascination with violence and terrible things because, man, there's a lot of people out there that watch true crime stuff. It seems more and more come out every day, and I don't know. It's crazy, but it's just interesting how that that plays into the movies you watch even, even if you don't even realize it. The film was followed by seven other films to date, including sequels, prequels, and remakes. The first sequel, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, in 1986, was considerably more graphic and violent than the original, and was banned in Australia for 20 years before it was released on DVD in a revised special edition in October 2006. Leatherface, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, came out in 1990 and was the second sequel to appear, though Hooper did not return to direct due to scheduling conflicts with another film. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation, starring Renee Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey, was, I always forget that he's in that movie, it's so wild, was released in 1995, while briefly acknowledging the events of the preceding two sequels, its plot makes it a virtual remake of the 1974 original. A straight remake, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, was released by Platinum Dunes and New Line Cinema in 2003. That one is one of the best remakes of any film ever. That that it really does a good job of it doesn't feel as documentary. It feels more like a movie, but it does like the grind it makes you feel grimy and like it just makes you feel uncomfortable. So, it does that well, I guess. It was followed by a prequel, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre: The Beginning in 2006, a seventh film, The Texas Chainsaw 3D was awful. And was released on January 4th, 2013. Has Trey songs in it, if that does anything for you. (laughs) It is a direct sequel to the original 1974 film with no relation to the previous sequels or the 2003 remake. Another prequel, Leatherface, was released exclusively to DirecTV on September 21st, 2017. Before receiving a wider release on video on demand and in limited theaters simultaneously in North America on October 20th, 2017. And this is one thing I did not know about. In 1982, shortly after the Texas Chainsaw Massacre established itself as a success on U.S. home video, uh, Wizard Video released a mass-market video game adaptation for the Atari 2600. In the game, the player assumes the role of Leatherface and attempts to murder trespassers while avoiding obstacles such as fences and cow skulls. As one of the first horror-themed video games, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre caused controversy when it was released due to its violent nature. It sold poorly as a result because many video game stores refused to stock it. That's fascinating. That has to be one of the first games where you're the killer in a game. Pretty cool. Had no idea about that. So, have you guys ever seen The Texas Chainsaw Massacre? If not, go watch it and let me know what you think. Because it's pretty good. It's one of those cla- It's like one of those movies you have to see. There's a couple of the, on that list, and it's just it's one of them. It's a classic. It, it's it's. It seems like it gets, it's not going away. Like, it's one of those movies every single year, there's like drive-ins and movie theaters that show it. It's just, 
like it's yeah it's a cult classic but it's just it seems like it's grows every year kind of like halloween but they're making new ones of that but you know what i mean the original is still like i feel like every year it gets more lore around it and stuff like that but so that will do it for episode three the texas chainsaw massacre thank you again for listening and for all your support even when i take months off at a time that won't happen again i'm gonna be i'm gonna try to release an episode every wednesday this one's gonna come out on a tuesday but from now on every wednesday is what i'm gonna try to shoot for um yeah so again if you don't follow me on instagram uh, it's retrowave podcast i do a lot of cool art for each episode I'm going to try to post some fun stuff over there. So, again, thank you for everything, for continuing to listen, even though I'm just rambling for a couple minutes here. And I will see you next Wednesday. <laughs>